Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, buddy. Welcome back. How you doing? Although I should say welcome back, but it's just before the Independence Day holiday. So, hey, how you doing before the long weekend? <laughs> it's great. I actually cheated and I've taken today off, which is Friday the 2nd. So I'm having a four day weekend. So I broke my lawnmower, which has been on its way out for three years. And it's only like five years old, which is quite frustrating. And I had the typical like woohoo moment when I got it running again after it just wouldn't start. But I think in doing what I did, it basically shortened its life span pretty drastically <laughs> and black smoke came out of it this morning so i was like okay it's time to treat myself to a new lawnmower i just remember taking it in every fall to get it tuned up and ready for the next year and then i stopped using it all together and hired a service because <laughs> i was never home in the summer <laughs> and now I, I live a place where i don't need it so i can't i can't help you buddy <laughs> you're on your own yeah it's uh like the one of the wheels falls off so mid lawn you have to like give it a good kick to get the wheel to go back in place i'm letting the neighborhood down with my uh <laughs> my mower oh too funny i'm sure there's an internet connected one somewhere you can get and then off you go oh it's home depot it's obnoxious how much lawnmowers cost now i can't believe it but it's almost cheaper just to get someone to come and do it i think so uh quite a bit of news out of the graph organization as well as the related services this week i know yeah so uh yeah a little peek behind the curtain there's all this news and paul doesn't get it so i'm just gonna throw it to you and you're <laughs> gonna talk about it and then so, so it's like a, a double interview this week first one <laughs> yeah. explore new change notification API resources for your Microsoft Teams app, which seems to be an enhancement of something. I will say, yeah, this blog is pretty cryptic. Like I had to read it a few times, but oh, this is what it is. Okay, we've known this is coming for a while. It's basically an expansion of what we already had in beta for Teams change notifications, webhooks for the average developer, but they've expanded the scope of them. So now you can basically do a what we call internally the fire hose, which is basically <laughs> supplied to any change to any channel in any team within the tenant and get whether the channel's created, updated or modified and do the same for membership as well. Um, but you can also do it to a particular team within a tenant. And then you can even just say, just subscribe to a, a channel within a team within a tenant. So you can go from everything to a team to a channel, which is actually really good. Um, and it does essentially um, support the ability of what we call internally rich webhooks, which essentially means rather than subscribe to the webhook and it calls it, and then you get an ID and you have to go back to the service and call it to get more the webhook will actually send you the information in the payload so you don't have to do the callback, um, which is really, really cool. And they've done the right thing by all this with the correct permission scopes so that you can do it very granularly um, if you choose to, which is high five to that team for doing that. And obviously, if you do rich notifications, you do need to do the extra encryption, cryptic content part as well. So it's secure. 
Yeah, this kind of rounds out the feature set, right? Because yeah. in the past, we could subscribe to new threads or new messages in a thread uh, and stuff inside, a, inside a, a team or a channel. So now it's kind of moving it up the up the stack, if you will. But I'd like to see that. And and since it's in the, the notification API space, I can put in the event grid or event hub. I can't remember which one you guys call it. <laughs> but I can tie that all together, right? It's all, all together. Yeah, so... Every webhook in the graph can also be changed to not be a API call to your service, but it can be dropped into an event hub and then you can do what you want picking off the queue, Yeah, um, yeah. which is really cool. And we're seeing that being quite popular for customers. And actually, I will correct myself in a comment I made a few weeks ago, and it shows the PMs listen to the show, Paul, Okay, because they corrected me on webhooks are retried. So if it if a, if our service can't call your API endpoint, that it retries it. Let's say for enough times just to make sure your service didn't skip a beat. Still not as transactional as an event hub. If your service is completely down, you, you will lose it. But it does try for a fair amount of time before it stops trying. Yeah, it's not one and done, but it's not persistent like the event. Or it's not cached like yeah. event hub would do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair, fair yeah. enough. Sounds good. And thanks for listening. <laughs> Love it when the folks yeah. are. So, hey, all you PMs who are listening, um, come on and talk about your area of, uh, of the product. So, yeah, perfect. Next uh, graph-related item, a breaking change is coming to the Microsoft Graph user purpose API in beta. I read this headline and said, I thought we weren't breaking changes. And Jeremy said, well, it's beta, so it's okay. And then I said, what is the user purpose API? So let's, uh, <laughs> can you educate the others who may not have been paying close attention like me? Yeah, so we were really surprised by this. And, and it has been in beta for a while, but it's got a lot of apps using this a lot. And so we decided, much like when we've announced some breaking changes in beta in Teams, to notify developers two months ahead. And in a lot of cases, we're reaching out to partners to let them know, hey, look, your app uses this like as if it looks like it's core to your product. We're going to change it. Um, you know, and obviously we have the right to do so based on the terms and conditions of the, the graph and beta API endpoint. And one thing I will call out as you know, running the customer success team for a graph is if you have not done publisher verification and associated your app ID with your partner center ID, unless you're in our tap program, it makes it really hard for us to reach out. Like short of us going on LinkedIn and trying to find contact details of someone at the company. So please, please, if you haven't done publisher verification, it's more than just adding trust to your application for your customers, it gives us the ability to notify you of things as well because we know who to contact. And so just to be kind of shout out to please, please do publish <laughs> verification and then go get certified as well um, because that way you get even more trust from your customers for being certified by Microsoft with whatever app, whatever multi-tenant app you have in the in the service. Well, so hold on, I want to pick that apart a little bit. You say get certified, you mean have the application certified, not necessarily user certification. Correct, yeah. Right? So there's there's publisher verification, which verifies you as a company publishing an app. So you could have 10 apps, but you are verified as a publisher. There's self-attestation, which is you fill out a form to say what your app behavior is like and compliance wise. And then certification is where we actually go validate that self-attestation and run a bunch of tests and, and check and validate your statements in the self-attestation. And so right now we support that in Team Store, the Office Web Add-in Store, and we're actually private previewing this with uh, all web apps in App Source as well. 
Um, so if you're interested in being certified for a web app where you don't have a Teams app or a Office web add in, please reach out to me and we'll get you added into our tap program and we can onboard you into that next wave of uh, first come first serve ISVs. And and for those who listen, who are a lot like me and say, I don't need to do all that because I know people, when you get them on the phone, Fabian says, hey, I can't find any of your apps in, in our system because we never did that, <laughs> that link up. <laughs> yeah, and Wes went and off some... and did it the next day. So <laughs> the back door slammed in my face. <laughs> yeah. Treat, treat the mean to keep them keen, I think is the saying, right? <laughs> so we're just trying to get everyone to do this yeah. and not have as much favorites and follow the process because it really does benefit ISVs, we've we've seen it where customers are like, oh, we don't really know, like we don't want to give this permission to your app. But if they're certified by Microsoft, the customer is like, yeah, no, okay, well, if Microsoft certified it, then we trust you guys. And so that has been definitely beneficial as a program that um, Tony Balkin's team is doing, which is great. And then the other question I need to answer for you is what's the user purpose API? And this allows you to differentiate the purpose of the mailbox in Exchange Online. So is it a single user mailbox? Is it a multi-user mailbox? Is it a conference room or even a piece of equipment? So there's a lot of ISVs that will iterate through all mailboxes in the tenant. And depending on the type of mailbox it is, they might may or may not do something with it. And so it is a lot of backup recovery, e-discovery vendors that are using this flag that's in beta. Um, in the production product, but we've given them until August 24th to essentially catch a 400 bad request error that will be thrown while we change the endpoint a bit in beta and fail over onto um, an additional endpoint and then we'll switch back to the other one afterwards. So we're we're going above and beyond what we have to do, but we know, you know, we just understand that people are using this and we don't want to break their products right now. Yeah, excellent. Next one is... Uh from the, the Graph API, sort of. Manage frontline workers in Microsoft Teams with tags and time clock APIs. And so tags, yeah, before we hit record, you and I were both learning what's tags. So this is very cool. So why don't you give us the overview of this one? Yeah, so I didn't know tags existed. And I think this is Teams is just getting really big now. But this is really cool. It allows you to, in the UI, go and look at the membership of a team and tag members of the team in different ways. Take a subset of the membership. Yeah, right. And so the scenario we've got, which I'm going to go do this for straight away, is we have a, a big team with all of the support people that basically do our support ticket escalations, my team that do kind of more like manage one-on-one -on -one engagements with partners, and then another team that works on graph Q&A. And we want to share knowledge of what's going on in, in that world. Um, so that we're all learning from each other on you know issues that are happening and and sharing that knowledge. But in some cases, we want to notify just one of those three sets of people. And so what you can actually do is tag those users um, based on the way you want to um, subset them. And then rather than like having to at mention like five people, you can just at mention a tag. Um, so you're not like spamming everyone by app matching a channel, which is like the devil's work in my opinion. Um, but you can basically use an app mention on a tag to notify us uh, like a tagged set of people, which is really, really cool. And so the API that's in beta now essentially allows you to create the tag in the team and assign it to the users, obviously get a list of the tags, update the tag and delete the tag, and then obviously see which members are in that in that particular tag too dynamically. So there's some really cool scenarios for this out 
outside the one I just explained. And so we're super impressed with the fact that we have those APIs now. And I'm sure they did this because there was a lot of demand for it. And then the last one, have you done much with the time clock APIs or the time clock and shifts and different things? Uh, just start kicking the tire on frontline workers' experiences. So no, I haven't gotten too much into this. Yeah, and so there's this notion of having frontline workers, which is people that essentially are on mobile devices, not sitting at a desk with a computer or a laptop on a monitor and so forth. Um, it allows the frontline user to clock in and clock out like you would in a factory floor. Um, you know, I got here at this time, I'm leaving at this time or in a retail store or something. But now they've actually got an API to do it. And so, you know, there's all these scenarios where you could be building your own custom app on your Apple Watch or uh, built into your own personnel app that they're all using to do that kind of clocking in and clocking out. Um, and even enabling location detection for clock in and things like that, all done via API. So some really cool scenarios that Teams is, is working on that um, I think is probably under love from the ISV community right now. I think there's some really great vertical applications for certain industries that this could be built out for, for sure. It, well, yeah, this goes back to your teams getting so big and moving so fast, it's hard for us to, have, to, to keep up. But um, the one thing that I like about the tag APIs though, right? So I can I can programmatically establish these tags. You know, it, when you were describing it, you talked about using the UI to pick and choose people in a tag, but there's certainly a lot of value if, if I know something on the back end of how, uh, about a team and, and I'm, I have an app that's participating in a team for whatever reason, and I know there's a subset of folks who I wanna, I want to make sure is easy to find. So that is that is going to be very helpful to to generate those tags. You know, generate those tags and put a message in the channel that says, "Hey, we created a tag for you know whatever reason." So that's certainly helpful. And and yeah, I can see the time clock thing. Uh, we we do have some customers with uh, truck drivers, so I can certainly see them that frontline worker type things and how far we we kick the tires yet to be seen. But uh, I'm glad that the potential is showing up there because Teams is the place to go, right? Yes, indeed. All right, so switching gears slightly, the next one I found was a, a developer preview of the Microsoft Federated Search Platform. And this is a post by Bill Bear. Bill has been in the Microsoft Search area for quite a long time. <laughs> and uh, yes, indeed. So the, it talks about the, the platform lets you do a bunch of things. One of them is define adaptive cards UX to render your search results in the answer card vertical. So this kind of gets you this whole federated search bit gets you uh, extending the search vertical. And we did a lot of this back in the day, SharePoint on-prem. So it's nice to see this type of capability now moving to the cloud. I'm not going to say it's the same thing because I'm sure it's a lot different under the covers, but but this is there's a way, there's a link in here to go through and sign up for the search private preview if this is something you want to set up for your tenant or your app. Yeah, and so this is actually something that my team's running. Um, it's actually Brian Jacket that's doing it. He's been on the show a few times. And this is, Federated Search is different from Graph Connectors. In the federated search model, this is actually calling out to the search engine that's external of Microsoft 365 to ask for its results and then render them in line with our search results. Whereas Graph Connectors actually ingests content into the index and returns them as native indexed items. And there's some other benefits that Graph Connectors get currently um, around kind of like integration with office.com in the recommendeds and different activities that can show up there. And But there's a lot of demand for this in a federated search. If, if a customer's already invested in existing enterprise search kit, and um, it uses the Microsoft Bot framework um, to do this connection uh, and obviously the adaptive cards area of it. So if you are interested 
interested in this and you do want to get your current enterprise search experience into Microsoft 365 Search across, you know, Teams, um, Office.com, SharePoint Search, Windows Search, Outlook Search, um, please sign up for that preview and um, we'll get you into the private preview once we start those briefings happening in the next few weeks. So um, it'll be right after summer break. Redmond is very quiet right now with everyone out. So uh Productive for me because less meetings, but um, not great for, you know, net new things spinning up like this. So I'm excited for this to kick off. Yeah. You know, and we were talking with Aicha about the the connector bits and the ingestion, right? There are some limits to what can be ingested. So if if you need to go bigger than those limits, this sounds like the option, right? Rather than push data into the search experience, have the search experience come knock on your door and you tell them what what you need to know. So good to see that moving along. And and there's some the ranking things you have to take into consideration. Obviously, if the content's indexed by us, we're going to do better, like, distance ranking than like, you know, not having that information from an external search. But, you know, there's a lot of scenarios where this is gonna be very, very popular. So we're excited to cut kicking the tires with a private preview of this. Yeah, yeah. I, I would love to kick the tires in this and I'm just not sure if I have enough time in the day. <laughs> yeah. um, speaking of not enough time in the day, I haven't done the next one because there's no time. Windows 11. <laughs> so I'm going to put a, blo- uh, a blog post in the show notes from Kevin Gallo, who you interviewed oh, a year or so now, I guess, of Bill. But a long time Kevin ago. Kevin posted yeah. a, what Windows 11 means for developers. And so it talks about the store and some dev tools and uh, rounded corners <laughs> and consoles and games and stuff. So uh, uh, certainly a high level here, but he's got links to the details that you need to see. Yeah. I, and I've noticed there's some really prominent people on Twitter. Giorgio Segato is one example of that, who's actually like Nicola Matulev, who owns the Toolkit's boss's boss, I think. And Giorgio is awesome, but I've noticed he's been announcing a lot of big ISVs coming to the Windows 11 store. So there's clearly been some work to make it easier to be part of this store than the current Windows 10 store as an example. So I've also seen a lot of positivity on the touch experience of Windows 11. I just got uh, a new hardware refresh. We get them every three years at Microsoft. And I got a Surface Book 3 where the screen pops off the keyboard base. And um, I'm kind of excited to push up, but I'm a little bit nervous about how stable it will be for a production laptop versus <laughs> yeah. uh, running Windows Windows 10. But yeah, we're you're on bleeding edge if you're running Windows 11, Teams dog food and Office dog food. This is bound to be something that doesn't work right, but we are being pushed to it apparently in the next few weeks. So guess I won't have a choice but to use Windows 11 at that point. There you go. Get ready. And actually, one of the uh, big call outs there, which uh, it missed the first wave. No one really caught it. But Rish, who is one of the senior engineering leads in the Microsoft Teams team, talked about the new Teams integration in Windows 11, which, uh, you know, in Windows 10, it was Skype had the button. uh, And now it's going to be Teams is going to be the button that leads the way in the experience. And he announced that they're moving off of Electron to WebView 2, which apparently will double the speed of the client. Um, so everyone is very excited about that because it is still notably a, a challenge with Teams that it can eat the resources of even a wonderful i7 laptop that I have before me. So I'm excited to see um, how quickly they get that tech rolled out into Teams. Yeah, you're in, and in Kevin's 
post, he talks about the new PWA builder to build a PWA from your web app using WebView 2. All right. So, yeah, that, that's nice. They're all caught. Everything's coming together. Yeah, yeah. Good. That's and good. That's great. And, and I'm sure people will find a problem with the new teams in the new environment too, but <laughs> move on. I'm, right? sh- I'm sure. You know, so I, we're, we're getting a little long here, so we'll drop into the community stuff. The first one real quick is there's an update to the Microsoft 365 platform community call schedule. I, we won't go into details, but uh, they're, they're changing. So you might want to go to this blog post and get the latest ICS files for your calendar so you can see them so you don't miss out. Uh, there's an AKAMS slash M365P and P is the link that they have to rule them all and links off to that as well. So um, there you go. Once the summer is over, which basically means late August into September, there's a new schedule for the calls. Yeah. So basically Tuesdays will become product group interaction calls and Thursdays will be community led presentation calls. That's the way to think about it. Excellent. And then the last one is a note from uh, finally get to a developer one, Don Kirkham has uh, a post that Don is an MVP in the SPFX space from Texas and him and I have interacted quite a bit and chatted, hi Don. And he posted an update to the developer certificate changes in SPFX version 1.12.1. This is the dev cert that you have to run and and primarily, actually Don and I interacted a while back using when Codespaces first came out. So we GitHub Codespaces, you can just launch a, like a, a pretend container in the cloud and talk to it and doing, doing the, the dev cert in that environment was tricky to begin with and then it changed so don lays out the steps quite detailed thanks for all the detail and and pictures to how to configure the environment if you're using wsl or code spaces to do your spfx dev so thanks don for that that's cool well i'm excited to hear this interview because you did this solo it will be on my non-commute i might actually i'm gonna listen to it when i mow the lawn there we go there you go there you go. So, George Rodenberg, Rodenberg, of course, I'm, I'm sure you'd be shocked to hear. I didn't quite get the last name right, but but he corrected me. George wrote a book with Manning called Code Like a Pro in C-Sharp. And so, he came on the show and we talked about what his what Code Like a Pro means for him and, and stuff he's got in the book. And, and in the show notes, we'll have a link. You can get the sample ebook code off of that and check it out. So, thanks to George for coming on and uh, we'll chat next time, buddy. Excellent. Have a good weekend, man. Happy 4th for everyone in the US. This week on the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Jort Rodenberg. Oh, I tried to roll the R's and I can't. So welcome to the show, Jort. Thank you. Thank you. You did great. Yeah. Well, don't lie to folks on the, on the recording. So will you please introduce yourself and say your name correctly for our audience? Sure, sure. It, it's Jort Rollenburg. You, you got to get the gurgle, the <laughs> which that, that's what people typically fall down with. So yeah, I'm Jort. I'm a uh, software engineer at Acronis in Phoenix, um, and I'm the author of a book on C-sharp called Code Like a Pro in C-sharp with uh, Manning that just came out. Thank you. Um, that book is the, the subject of our podcast today. And I know for many of our listeners probably have already used C-sharp, some of them maybe not, but I thought this was a great opportunity to you know expand the knowledge of listeners. So hopefully folks will stick around and, and listen through as we cover uh, C-sharp from your point of view. And I guess that's the, the place to start is what is the book about and why did you decide to write it? So, I mean, the book is about C-sharp, obviously. There is a a funny little thing in the C-sharp world with learning resources where there's a lot of beginner resources. 
and there's a lot of really advanced resources. Think about, you know, your John Skeet books, the CLR via C Sharp books. And they, in the beginner's space, you have, you know, learn programming with C Sharp 101. There's nothing really in the middle there that bridges that gap. And that that's where this book hopes to come in. Um, and that was kind of the impetus to start writing this book. Okay. And so... Obviously, C-sharp is uh, a .NET thing. So do you start at the beginning of .NET? Or are we talking just .NET Core, recent stuff? Is it single platform, cross-platform? What, what was the, the objectives, I guess, when you're talking about it? That's a very good question, because when I started writing the book, .NET 5 was not out. It had not been released. Like It was out on the horizon. I was aware of it. But there was no early access release at that point. So it started out being mostly .NET Core. Um, the book follows a existing go code base that is written in .NET Framework, and we want to port it up to .NET Core because at that point that was the new modern thing to do. Not anymore. So, about halfway through writing the book, you know, I woke up one day and was like, "Oh, .NET 5 is here! You know, there's a release client. We can try it out now." So that was a bit of a pivot. So now it is all .NET 5. So it's taking an existing code base from .NET Framework uh, 4 to .NET 5. And this existing, you know, application or code base, web-based, uh, native client. Give us a little bit of, of what what is the what is the application doing that that you used as your as your example. Sure. So so it's a web API basically with some backend stuff. It attempts to model the booking system of an airline. It's uh, flying Dutchman Airlines because you know I'm Dutch. I snuck in the reference there. So it, it's basically, you know, you have your legacy code base, the company is doing well, they want to scale up, but their code base is pretty much completely horrendous. That's basically chapter three and four goes over the existing code base and points out all the places like, yeah, that, that's not right. Um, and so it was a lot of fun to write those. But yeah, so it's a web API based kind of thing. You, you know, send your booking requests, you see what flights are available. And that is what gets basically rewritten almost completely in .NET 5. So, you know, we won't have a monolith at that point because basically the existing code base, all the controls are in one file. Basically, it is a giant mess, code comments everywhere, unsecure code, and we kind of clean that up as we go. Uh, that's great. And then I guess for, for folks who, even if you're starting fresh, I assume the concepts can still apply, right? It's not necessarily I have to take old code and use the book for that, right? Oh, no, 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 not at all. It's just a very convenient educational train to ride at that point. Um, the, the book does not teach you how to program necessarily. It, it's not meant to be your first programming book. Like, I'm not going to tell you what a for loop is. It doesn't explain what a variable is. Um, so there, there's some existing knowledge required. It's really targeted at people who have some knowledge of a object-oriented language. It doesn't have to be C-sharp, because that's kind of the, the second goal of this. It is to get maybe Java people into C-sharp. You know, even Go would be an easy transition, even though it's not completely OO. Yeah, but I can certainly see some value for folks. I like to say it's good to have multiple viewpoints on a problem, because that helps you, you know, get a better uh, solution to it. And so am I doing my, a system in a way that others are doing can certainly be helpful. And so if we if we think about that, this this target application that we get at the very end, can you give us an overview of what that looks like? Looking at the table of contents, I see different layers that you talk about. So can you just give us an overview of what like the, the end goal would be if I followed the guidelines in this book? So the end architecture is basically your typical 
but I like to think it's a typical web API. Everybody is different, but you have your controller layer, you have your business logic layer, and your data storage layer. So with the data storage, is that's why we start, we kind of build from the ground up. We go with Entity Framework Core, and it touches on things like reverse engineering the existing code base if it's already deployed, because it doesn't go through, you know, how to create a schema. So it's much more, you know, you're, you're given this database, go, go make your code work with it, um, which at least in my experience has typically been the way it's been. So we have the data storage layer, Entity Framework. Then you got your business logic layer. You know, that that's really... The, the service layer, I think is what I call that. But it's kind of delegating, you know, the service layer things that we need to call. In this particular code base, luckily, the service layer is somewhat simple. There, there's not a whole lot we need to do there. So the bulk of the action is in the data storage layer. And then obviously you have the control layer, which is the REST API stuff. That's the endpoints and the controllers that, that you would call. And is each of these layers in a separate DLL, or do you end up running it into a single one or multiple solutions? What, what, what's your approach on how to structure your Visual Studio you know, setup, so to speak? Oh, sure. Well, for this one, it's all in one DLL. I do have a separate uh, project for testing because um, the book goes through what I call test-driven development light, which is somewhat more practical than actual test-driven development, in my opinion. It's you know test-driven development where it's convenient. So you, it, it's still a bit of a monolith, but it's not split up in like class libraries or anything like that. Especially for a code base of this size, it, it's not really necessary. Because it the code base you end up with at the end of the book, it's not a full-fledged business application. Like that. You, you can't do that in three, 400 pages and it would get really boring. Because part of this is too that I'd say 99% of all the code in the repo is actually covered in the book. Like there, there's not really something like, oh, and now we created this class, and then the next page there's 500 new lines of code introduced that you've never seen before. So all lines of code you will have seen, which I thought was important. Yeah, I think that that, that certainly certainly gets helpful. And and now the the as I'm, I'm walking through the table of contents here, so the first thing that struck me as we start diving into the, the what you've titled the database access layer, but you have a section on there about the host builder and a startup class. And I think that's terrific because I would imagine folks in .NET framework haven't necessarily used all the dependency injection in the startup and the, all that stuff. So can you talk a little bit about the approach that you took there and, and is it custom or just out of the box stuff or just a little background of what you're talking about there? Sure. Um, I can sure try. It's been a while since I wrote that section, so bear with me. It is mostly out of the box. Um, luckily, you know, .NET with ASP.NET does have a fantastic infrastructure that you can just use at a click of a button. So we're not really doing anything weird when it comes to you know, the web host and the builder, those kind of things. Um, I do remember that when I had to switch over the book to .NET 5, the existing implementation that was used in .NET Core um, I had to kind of throw out the window. It, it still worked because, you know, C-Sharp.net, it's backwards compatible, except there were compiler warnings that were being generated. And some of the reviewers of the book that review the book in the meantime, while you write it, they're like, yeah, you know, it, it works. It's kind of, you know, it's not great. You have compiler warnings. It's not the new way of doing it. So now I have to do research and like, oh, what is the new way then? Because .NET 5 was new to me as well, of course. So that was interesting. Um, as far as dependency injection goes, also... Not much custom. You just do it in your startup. You just define it as you know transient or a single dependency, and it kind of rolls downhill from there. It, it it's not necessarily a 
advanced look at how to do dependency injection in C sharp. Like there is a book out there for that, I believe, with Manning that was written a couple of years ago. But it's still a like a very common thing that you would do in your daily development on a web API. So it is covered, but it's not in excruciating detail. It's more, you know, these are the type of things you can do, scope, transient kind of dependencies. This is how you add them. Unfortunately, it's a little bit verbose. It's how the language is in this regard, but we'll just have to deal with it. If you don't like it, there's some packages you can use as well. Okay, and and then you move on to talk about the database access layer. And you mentioned earlier this is EF core, right? And so is there anything interesting that folks would want to see about what's going on with that? Or is that one of the, you know, you said reverse engine. Well, I'll let you talk about it. So give us a little bit about what this, this database access layer EF core stuff is about. So the reverse engineering, while it may not be a strange tip to most people, I do think it's pretty cool. It, it is a thing that not every, you know, every language platform database thing has. Um, being able to, you know, having a database deployed in Azure or AWS or even locally, because the database in the book is both deployed in Azure, but it's also you can run it locally as well. The file is provided. You know, being able to just launch up your terminal, type in basically a connection string and say reverse engineer this and it spits out all these models. It auto-generates the code for you. It, it's it's magic. It, You know, for better or for worse, it's magic, but it, it's really cool. So that is a big part of that, that database access layer section. It also kind of talks about, you know, this is your typical C-sharp structure. You know, you have your project solution, those kind of things, and how do you create those in the terminal? Somewhat basic on how to set it up. Um, and there was a bit of a trade-off um, with regards to teaching people how to program, which I didn't want to do, and teaching people how to get started in C-sharp. Because if we take the lens of somebody coming in from a different language, they're not going to know how to set up a C-sharp project. You know, you can go in Visual Studio and click new and follow the template guide but that's you know, again it's magic so being able to do it through the terminal now you somewhat understand it it's still magic but you somewhat understand it. you actually have to type it out as opposed to click a button and i think i'd love to get your opinion on on that right so one thing that i always thought was nice that i could do these a couple steps and for the most part i'll have code that works it may not be the most efficient sql but at least it's working and i can focus on getting the problem solved right so what did you what's your experience in, in using that in that context oh yeah it, it's the same and you'll you'll definitely see that throughout the book in this code base that may not be the prettiest code but it does work. It's a balancing act. And the code you end up with at the end of this book, it is not going to be the prettiest code in the world, but it does work. Um, and it is something that you can build on. I, I wish that all code I wrote was pretty. Unfortunately, not the case, um, as my colleagues keep pointing out. <laughs> but yeah, it, but on the other hand, like if I have the opportunity, when, when I need to create a new project or solution or whatever, I, I typically still use Visual Studio. Like I, I like knowing that I can do it in the terminal, but Visual Studio, I just have to click a button. I'm lazy. I, I'm, I'm always going to click the button. Mo moving up the stack, I guess, if, if you will, as, as part of the book, you mentioned test-driven development. And so the, this next question talks about that. So go ahead and give us your definition of test-driven development as it relates now to, to, the, to the concepts in the book. Right. I do what I call test-driven development light. Um, and this was a bit of a thing in the book too, because I first didn't add the light part to the definition. And people were saying, well, what you're doing is not really test-driven development. Um, so, so they made me add that. Like, fine, it, it makes total sense. Where, where my definition or practice of TDD kind of differs is that 
Yeah, typically with TDD, you would have every time you need to create something new, you would first create the test, go to the red can't compile stage, then excruciating detail, create your function. Now my test pass function doesn't do anything. Now I add one parameter, my test fills again. Now th that whole back and forth, you can kind of short circuit that for a lot of things. And that's what I found with other people too and daily development when they use TDD. I typically will get a very bare bones function started. I will do a little bit of processing and then I'll create a test and then I'll jump into that cycle of, you know, adding something to the test first and then adding it in the function. But it's not that, you know, I'm going to follow those rules completely to the letter and do that. And so I get the, the guidance that you're giving then is, is following that a little bit. Is, you know, what I see in a table of contents is the typical arrange act assert type of stuff. But and so I can use this to get started down that path, I'm, I'm guessing, and then dive in deeper if, if I need to. Yeah, I think that's right. Because even to do TDD Lite, you, you still need to know what TDD is. So it does very briefly cover arrange act assert and what those things are in case you weren't aware of TDD. Um, I, I couldn't make the assumption that everybody reading the book knows what it is if I'm going to be using it and breaking its rules. So yeah, you should be able to use both TDD and TDD Lite after reading that. Um, but throughout the book, it's TDD Lite. And then are you always you know, writing an interface and then injecting the uh, an, an implementation of the interface or, or do you sometimes fudge it and, and just do a class itself or a combination of both? Give us your thoughts about what we expect to find in the book in that concept. I mean, I'm not going to lie and say that I do everything perfect. It, it does talk about coding to interfaces and using that, but the hard reality is in daily development that even though you may know these rules and may know that, that is the best way to do it, it may not be the most convenient way to do it. And I think that is part of knowing how to code like a pro. Um, it is knowing when to be able to fudge that, but also know what the consequences of that are. You will see, you know, interfaces being ejected and using polymorphism and all those things, because I do love polymorphism. But on the other hand, you will see, you know, me shortcutting it and taking little little detours there and not quite doing it as, you know, the, the gurus would have you perhaps do it. I, I, I don't write an interface until I have two of the things, typically, right? right. There you go. That's a good rule, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's premature optimization to a degree. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I think is, you know, I do find a lot of... I find sometimes that the dependency injection seems kind of onerous. Well, I have one thing, so why am I injecting it? And it, it, I find that it shines best when perhaps I'm, I'm doing a different interface. Typically, I'll have different requirements for tele uh, logging and telemetry. And so maybe I want to get that those settings out of configuration and inject them. But yeah, so uh, awesome. Great stuff right. there. And I mean, with that too, once you go down the road of using dependency injection, I also don't want to not do it in certain places. Like, I, I do try to stick with one approach at least. So even though we may not need technically to use DI, it's comfortable. It feels nice. People like it. You know, it makes me look smarter to use it sometimes. So it makes the code reviews pass by. So I'll use it. You, you know, this is a bit of a tangent, but uh, inevitably I end up trying to figure out how to do dependency injection in a console app because I've done all that code <laughs> somewhere else. And I just right. want to have a little CLI type thing approach it. And so... <laughs> That's always, yeah, anyways. Um, when we, I want to move up the layer a little bit, bit further. And, and the next talks about the, the service layer. And that's where you talk about error handling, and at least in the table of contents. And so the, the, can you give us a, an overview of how the sample or the, you know, how the book's application talks about these infrastructure type things like logging and error handling? 
Sure. So with error handling, it's a bit of a peculiar thing, error handling, because in my opinion, there really is no one good way to do error handling. It's always going to be somewhat messy because you're dealing with errors. It, I haven't found the one way to do it. So what I landed on with this is use custom exceptions for certain business logic related errors. Don't use them, you know, if your parameter is incorrect or if you're throwing a null, you know, just use the built-in argument exception to an opener exception, exceptions that you can use. However, since we are dealing with like a database, you will have a exception like I could not add the flight to this database. And it is maybe not immediately clear why that is the case. And if it were just to be returning the error to the end user, well, then A, I'm exposing internal details, which you probably shouldn't be doing in the first place. But B, it's not going to help them anything. So there's no action they can do with that. So in that case, I will create a custom exception. Maybe I'll add some text to it. But at least it kind of clears it up for the end user and it makes my code a little bit more readable because I can just say, oh, you know, I'll throw this could not add flight to the database exception and be done with it. And and the, the, this application is a web API, you said. So it, it becomes somewhat simple, I guess, just to just to return an invalid status code. But is what logging approach are you doing, or or is that an exercise for the for the reader? So the logging is mainly done to the console. Um, there is some material in there for how to redirect console output. But in general, logging is not a really big thing of this code base. Now, in reality, you know, that, that is different. That, that is one of the probably many sacrifices that had to be made to, you know, cover all the things in one book. You, you can't cover the world, logging being one of them. And But especially for a web API, in my experience, a lot of times there may be a system uh, like, like Kibana or something that will actually take the console output from maybe a deployed container and just store it already. So in that case, a console log may actually be sufficient, but it's going to you know, depend on how you deploy your stuff. And it's going to depend on a lot of things. <laughs> yes, it would. Um, <laughs> and, and then when you call it a service layer versus the repository layer, can you give us a little bit of what's the distinction between those, those two things? There's not a lot of distinction. So repository layer, I think that more fits into the database access layer on this particular project. The the service layer here really is the delegator for all the requests coming in from the control layer and saying, oh, you need to have, you know, this, this, and this from the database. I will query those as opposed to, you know, querying cross database um, concerns in the, in the database access layer. Okay. All right. It's, and so uh, if I want to book a flight, then I don't want to book it until I'm sure that the payment was made. That's the type of thing in a, in a service layer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The service layer would make sure that all everything is in line and it just does it step by step, almost like a blackboard pattern almost. Yeah. It, it just delegates the steps it needs to take and request the stuff from the data access layer. Okay. All right. And, and now on top of all that, you're listing the controller layer. And so th this can be, uh, you know, I find that this, I can get down in the weeds and this is very, very easy. So well, first let's start with, why don't you tell us what you put in this controller layer section? What does that mean? So the controller, it's your typical REST API controller. So for flight, you may have, you know, a flight class that has it has your post, it has your get, it has those kind of things in there. So just REST API. And within that, it will spin up the service layers that it needs. Um, well, actually, it's injected, so it just uses it like that. And it 
cause those and it gets stuff back and it returns the info. So I, I don't want my controllers to be overly heavy. You, you really don't want to do a lot of actual business processing in a controller because now, you know, you really want to decouple those concerns from that. And that's what this whole these whole layers are for. The big question that I always struggle with is a REST API can be oriented around the entities. And we see this a lot like in the Microsoft Graph API where where I have an entity. So you have a flight controller. So if I want to get a flight, so it's, you know, slash flight slash ID. But sometimes I want to do operations. And so do you do you have a preference as to how you structure the endpoints and the controllers or, you know, methods? Well, first, let me, let me start at the, at the big layer, right? So if I'm consuming your API, do I have things that we used to call operations back in the WCF days or, or what's your approach to that? I mean, for, for this one, it's definitely entity-based. If you're at the end of this book and you want to do like an operation, you're kind of out of luck because it's not there. So, you know, feel free to add it. But the, the it does kind of talk about like what the consumer of this API would be. Because, you know, ideally you're creating this for somebody else. It's not really the fake airline you're creating it for. The kind of the use case scenario is that they want to integrate with a flight aggregator. And that flight aggregator needs to be able to say, okay, give me all the flights that you may have available, all your routes, um, and then we'll display those and then people can book and stuff. It, it's really just, you know, you have your get flights, you have your post booking. It, it It's somewhat simple on an entity level there. Okay. And, and given this different layers that we've talked about, if I was going to have to, if I'm going to code an operation and that operation has some type of resulting data that maybe isn't an entity or it's a combination of data from different entities, where would you go about and what layer would you end up putting these types of things and, and exposing it to folks? Is it is it really just... Well, I'll let you answer the question. I have a lot of options, but uh, I know that it's something that I always struggle with. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you could put it anywhere, right? Like there there really are no hard and fast rules there. Uh, But I'd probably put it in the service layer. Um, Service laying being the point where if a controller gets in a request to do a certain operation, they will call the service layer with a predefined like workflow almost. Um, You can create your actions there and then it would be simple as maybe like the strategy pattern where you can just call run on it and it would do what you need and then the service layer grabs what it needs from the database processes the data you know maybe it calls a different class library or something you you can abstract that away if you really want to do that um but the service layer i think yeah yeah okay and so then the controller layer sounds sounds a bit thin then so it's really just routing and serialization right yeah that's my goal um like I said, like I don't want controllers to do any business processing if I can get away with it. Now that is not always, you know, realistic, but I, I really don't want that because it's the point of contact with external worlds. Like I don't want that to do any business processing if I can get away with it. Yeah. Okay. And then um, obviously you you said this is .NET five. So are you using the new JSON serializer or is it still using the legacy Newtonsoft one or both or? So I was using the Newtonsoft one um, up until .NET 5 came out, yeah. Um, so it um, does use the new one. I believe there is a call out in there saying you could use Newtonsoft for this as well. But yeah, it uses the new one. We I did try to convert over all the legacy legacy .NET Core 3 stuff to .NET 5 where applicable. Um, luckily, it wasn't a massive task because backwards compatibility, things just run. Uh, but there were one or two places like using the new JSON stuff and yeah, that I had to do and the web builder host stuff. 
So did you find that uh, you said it's not a big task to do then, right? Uh, uh, but I'm guessing, was there any custom? I, I tried. I tried to to drop in the the new serializer in a .NET three that one project and I had errors like crazy. But I was I was actually using the J object to to parse some stuff. So if if I'm following along here, did you find it onerous or, or troubleshooting, or was it really just kind of straightforward copy copying a new one? Yeah, it it was almost plug and play. I was very pleasantly surprised. There, there's no weird. J object parsing going on with this. We're just returning basically a serialized struct, almost a serialized view to back to the flight aggregator. And it does kind of talk about structs versus views as well. But yeah, what what we return out of the database, we just put it into a view and we return that. There's no weird, funky stuff going on, um, which made it a lot easier, probably, yeah. right? Yeah. And another reason to have a thin yeah. controller layer, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really as easy as, you know, return flights. It's great. Yeah. Um, so, so that's awesome. Now, the, the, the last item that I want to cover, at least out of, out of the, uh, the table of contents, was the, the open API. So this is obviously near and dear to, I know a couple of listeners who, who are involved in OpenAI. So give us a description of what OpenAPI is and what, what type of stuff are you including in the book around that or in this project about that? Sure. Um, I, I should preface, I'm not an OpenAPI expert, um, but the book does cover it. Uh, so it is a specification that allows us to re- return and input API information in a specified manner. It's a specification. So the way it's used in the book is that it uses the swagger that is automatically generated at runtime, which you can add add that as a dependency. So we use that to match it against the requirements we got from the fake flight aggregator. So the book is like a little contract from the flight aggregator that has these are the APIs, the API that you need to create, these are the endpoints that you need, um, and these are the query parameters and those kind of things that we require. So in the last chapter, we generate the swagger, um, our open API, um, and we kind of match it up against each other. That was a bit of a late addition because it is not necessarily required for this use case to be successful to generate a Swagger file. Um, But I did find it to be something I use quite a lot in my own work. It's just helpful being able to spin up your service, go, you know, do the slash Swagger, um, slash open API, and it just goes there. Yeah, it's just the acceptance requirements testing kind of thing is how it's used more more than a development thing to develop against. Yeah, you know, I do the same thing, right? If that's my start page. And then when I see that page, I know that I'm ready to go, right? I can now start hitting the API, right? Yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. And it does actually have the um, the YAML, full YAML code of the open API that is um, generated at the end as, as one of the appendices, um, which some people seem to like that. And they, they wanted to be able to read um, the actual YAML of the Swagger file, like, well, you know, you can generate it. Maybe, maybe you're in an airplane reading this and you want yeah. to read the YAML. I don't know, but it, it's there. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I certainly think that's great. Um, and and so this this is wonderful stuff. Uh, now, um, the book is available now. Yes, or is it coming soon? It's available now. It's available now on the Manning website, digital and print. Um, other retail stores like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, those kind of places will get it in early August, I believe. That's the kind of timeline they're aiming for. Excellent. And and so the one question I asked you that before we recorded that I forgot to put in now. So uh, the cover, the cover, orange, orange is my favorite color. So I love the orange writing. But uh, the the old picture that's on there is that uh, something you drew? I, I just right. right? So, uh, <laughs> no, I wait. I cannot draw. That that is definitely. I'm not an artsy person at all. Well, you wrote a web API, so that's kind of assumed. <laughs> 
right, right, exactly. Yeah, it would be really weird if I could draw as an engineer. That yeah. Um. So the the way Manning does it is they they have their house style, which typically for these types of book it's books it's the the black and white background basically. They have a couple of other styles, but that's most of their books. And then they put on a picture that comes from one of like five really old books they pick up at yard sales, and they have old drawings in them. Um, and I believe this is from a book that has drawings of like different cultures, basically. Um, and there, there is a little bit in the book about what the man is. Um, and from what I remember, it is a um, like a Russian, uh, Siberian kind of tribe that they're depicting. So they give you three different ones to choose from. I, I chose this one mainly because out of the three that I was giving, this one looked like the most more capable person, like pro, you know, he has a bow. Yeah, I guess. Beyond that, I didn't have much input in the cover. The, the orange is a nice yeah, touch. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm Dutch. It's orange. The guy is orange. It, it seemed to work. The airline's logo is orange. It works. I don't know if they did it on purpose, but it, it is what it is. We'll go with it. We'll, we'll just go along with saying that it was all your choices and well done. Right, exactly. That's great. Yes, yes. <laughs> exactly, I, I should yes. become a cover designer. Yeah. So uh, as our listeners, you know, get the book and start going through it and have questions, are you out on social media that folks can find you and uh, uh, interact? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. So there's two main ways to do that. You know, you can find me on LinkedIn. Your Dash Rodenberg is my LinkedIn thing. Website, yourrodenberg.com. Other than that, Manning actually has an online forum that you have access to. So if you register the book, if you didn't buy it from Manning, if you register the book with them, you'll get the ebook copy for free and they have like an online reading platform where you can read it and they have a forum where you can ask questions and tie them to specific sentences. So that has been going for the last year or so because Manning releases their books in early access. So you, you buy it in early and you get access to this forum. And so I've been answering questions on and off on there. Um, and I typically tend to get emails when people ask questions. So I should be able to answer any questions you have. Excellent. So thanks so much for coming on the show. And I uh, hope, to, hope to see that how to be a super pro. You know, this is the follow-on book will tell me how to get to the, the top level. So it was awesome. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you very much. for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.M365DevPodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 